Welcome to another season of Writers' Festival Radio. Thank you for listening. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival. And we're still dealing with the pandemic, so for the time being, we'll have to keep connected virtually, even as we maintain our distance. We are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library for their collaboration in our second virtual season. The season has begun, and it's all available online at writersfestival.org. So all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Please consider making a donation to support our virtual programming, as it may be a long while before we are able to gather again in person. I want to thank you in advance for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. It's always a good idea to buy a book, and of course, you can't go wrong supporting local independent booksellers. I want to thank the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. Our host today is Rhonda Douglas. She's a poet, editor, and fiction writer, and I can heartily recommend her collection of stories, Welcome to the Circus. Rhonda will be talking with Kim Eklund about her new novel, Speak Silence. We'll start with a taste of the prose, then Rhonda will introduce us to Kim and her remarkable new novel. Excerpt, Speak Silence. Cosmos was laughing at me, and he understood little of what I was playing at, as I had understood little of his bridges. We are each born of particular violence on this blue and green planet in the dark and lifeless universe. And rather than be here together in awe, we war with each other. I was not thinking about any of this that first night with Cosmos. No matter how many violent stories we told each other to pass the dark hours, we were really only thinking about making love together. All that first night until dawn we talked. The truly devastating things had not yet happened. Okay, so I am here with award-winning author Kim Eklund. Uh, She is the author of Elephant Winter and Dagmar's Daughter, and her third novel, The Disappeared, was nominated for the Scotiabank Giller Prize and won the Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers Award for Fiction. Um, And we are talking today about the novel that's just about to come out. So I, I think we can say hot, hot, hot off the presses, speak silence. Um, And I think before we get started, Kim, we'll just um, give a quick uh, trigger warning for folks. So we are going to be talking about rape and rape as a weapon of war and crimes against humanity. Um, And so I just want folks to know that that's the nature of of some of the material. So uh, care for yourself as you need to. Okay, so let's dive in um, to your, your gorgeous book, Kim. Um, I wanted to start with this because near the end of the novel, this is, this is a novel about oh, so many things, uh, you know, the, the powerful relationships that, that develop in the context of war, um, but at its heart, sort of the, 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 yeah, I guess at the heart of it really is the, the um, rape used as a weapon of war um, in the war in the former Yugoslavia. So near the end of the novel, you write, the women's stories are inscribed inside me, I said, and now they are inscribed against you, inside you. 
when I read that, it seemed to me you were saying something about why you wrote this novel. And so I just wanted to ask you that. Why did you write this novel? Would you tell us the story of how you came to write this particular story? Sure. Um, so the, the, the genesis of this book was long in many ways because I was among uh, those who watched this war on television in the 1990s. And it was uh, interesting to me at the time that so many women were reporting on this war. I watched it through the eyes of Anna Maria Tremonti from the CBC, Carol Off. And then when the trials started in um, the late 90s and early 2000s, Louise Arbour, who is a Canadian judge, was the chief prosecutor at the courts. And it was under her, um, her watch that this particular trial uh, that I focus on in the story uh, took place um, for part, the early part of her tenure there. <clears throat> so, the, you know, I had been watching and thinking about this story for a long time. I was very interested in how many women were involved in both the reporting and the, the legal part of the, uh, of the story. And, you know, there were women, the women were testifying, they were prosecuting, they were doing the research, the head judge on this trial was a woman, and the chief prosecutor of the court was a woman. So it seemed to me that something very, very different and important was happening here that I had not seen in my lifetime. And so that was enough to to start. But then you spend, you know, you spend a lot of time writing a novel, and you have to bring it down to your personal. And I realized that this story though it began um, in, a, in a court in The Hague and in a war in the former Yugoslavia, it was deeply personal. And it had to do with the silences that women or marginalized people or people who are victims of war carry inside them, and therefore all of us carry inside them. And so I, I really wanted to work with this idea of how we are silenced by war, but also by our own sexuality, by our motherhood, by our nurturing, all of the things that women have been working for in the last couple of centuries, really. So there was a nice cohesion in this in this story, more than a nice, it was a powerful cohesion between an actual historical event and a world-changing historical um, court decision and what I was living in my own experience. And was it a hard book to write? I mean, how did you manage your own emotional well-being around the writing of the book? I, I, the material is is stark. Yeah, it it was a difficult book to write. I mean, it's difficult to engage with these material materials emotionally, but it may be actually more difficult to not engage with them. Uh, I I seem to live with this feeling of once you know something how do you act? What do you do? And to not act on it would have been at a certain point absolutely impossible for me. I think the, 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 one of the great challenges was finding the right language for this book. And I was looking for a language that could reflect the, um, both the courage and the, um, um, the spareness of the women who testified. Um, but that was also clear enough and capable of holding the um, the types of violence that are in this book. Mm. And I mean, that's something that, uh, you know, learning something, seeing it, and then being unable to let it go is something that the main character, uh, Gota, or Goat, as she's fondly known, um, 
deals with as well. And it's what draws her through it. So can you just say a little bit for us about, for, for folks who won't have read the book yet, sort of, you know, uh, Gota's experience of Sarajevo and the former Yugoslavia as an outsider before and after the war, like her whole relationship there. Right. Oh, Gota, who, unlike me, discovered the former Yugoslavia because she was in Paris. And she uh, fell in love with uh, uh, an exile, a Bosnian exile, um, didn't know anything about his history, just as he knew almost nothing about her Canadian history, but they fell in love. And so by virtue of then that very personal connection, she um, was interested. Um, he does not, they do not stay together and she goes home pregnant and um, has her baby on her own. Um, but she looks for a way of earning her living writing and finds it in travel writing, fairly light travel writing, because she she, wa- she wants to be a travel writer, but she's a mother and she can't travel easily. Uh, so, you know, she's, she's sort of holding that tension. Uh, and it's not until really some years later that she decides to go to Sarajevo, 11 years later, to find um, the father of her child. And at that point, she becomes very connected to this story. Yeah, I, rem- I, uh, I I travel a fair bit, or once upon a time I did, and um, I think I recognized En Route magazine there somewhere in that. <laughs> never named, but I thought, oh, I read that article, yes. <laughs> so um, she has a relationship that is really important here. She sort of builds a remarkable bond of friendship and sisterhood with a woman, Edina, a Bosnian woman who has... Uh, been a victim of the war and who is uh, fighting to ensure that these women's stories can be told. And they have this really interesting relationship. And I couldn't tell, you know, is it because of their relationship with Cosmos or in spite of? Um, but I would love to hear your thoughts on sort of the the role of this kind of friendship and of sisterhood like this in general in the novel. She so this is a novel, a love story in which everybody's loving the wrong person. Um, Adina loves her husband, who she loses in the war. Uh, Cosmos loves Adina, but he, she has never been available to him because uh, she loves her husband. Uh, Gota loves Cosmos, um, and 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 so you've got this circle where people are not people are very loving, and people love and experience passion, but it's just not quite the right one. It's like the forest in Shakespeare, right? (laughs) Where the lovers are all chasing the wrong person. So they're in the forest. But I think that the bond between the women is really interesting because this is an unexpected one. It has to do with women connecting for reasons that they can't articulate, but they're drawn to each other. And it is the essence of friendship we're drawn to people often for reasons that we don't understand. Um, and then we share, you know, each other's lives and stories. And so, you know, when Gota is attracted to it and, and loves as a friend, Adina, she's also wary because she knows that she's getting into difficult territory and she knows herself that she can't turn away if she discovers difficult things. Adina's attraction to Gota is I think a little different in the sense that yes, they too are attracted, she too is attracted to Gota, but um, um, she doesn't have a lot of mobility and she's got a real drive to do this work on behalf of the women victims of war. Uh, So, you know, hers is a little more complex. 
I loved how they, uh, how chess was a thing that connected them, even though Gota doesn't play very well. But there's a, a lot of their conversations happen either over the phone or in person when they're playing chess. Are you intending something around chess as a metaphor there? Um, can you speak to that? Well, I mean, chess is a great metaphor because chess is a metaphor for battle and warring. Uh, chess is a way in which Adina can really uh, demonstrate her prowess and her talents and skills. When I was writing these sections, I felt Adina as she was before the war. I could really um, feel her as that confident, competent, um, competitive woman. And the war did not completely strip her of that, but it did take a lot of that from her because she never practiced law again, for example. So to see Adina playing chess with Goda was really fun and fun to write because I could I could feel this powerful woman who loved com competition for the fun of it. Uh, so that was more or less, but I've had um, more than one relationship with women long distance where most of our relationship has been over the telephone. And it corresponded with a time in my life when I had children and I was home, and usually it was the same for them. And I think these these telephone relationships between women can be very rich because you're carving out a little tiny space all for yourself within your own domestic situation. And they're free. Um, you know, you, you can grab the person while you're doing things or while you have moments at the end of the day or very late at night, which is what they settle I love on. that. Um, so Adina and her mother and her daughter are three generations of women who are caught up in this terror and, and testify eventually at the International Criminal Tribunal and in The Hague. And so their testimony and that of the other rape victims ends up, you know, reshaping the law. But what it leaves you with as a novelist is much of the drama unfolds in a courtroom. And were there particular challenges of writing the, either a, just a courtroom drama in in general, or that particular Portland drama? The, the intrinsic creative challenge of writing a courtroom drama is that in order for the drama in the court to have resonance, we have to know a lot about the characters before they walk into the courtroom. And so the challenge is making that front part of the book and building the characters and establishing who they are and how they may or may not work in court um, uh, strong enough to sustain the court room. And then in this particular court case, it's because it's based on a real case, the drama is mitigated by the fact that we know the outcome. So we're not waiting to see who wins in this case. And so, it, you know, it's, it's sort of like you don't read this for the ending, you read this for the the journey or the process. Yeah, and the stories, the richness in the story. Yeah. Uh, hard as they were, yeah. So in the novel, this is also near the end, I, uh, you wrote, um, there was only times erasing. The law carves incisions on old scars and makes a record, and still there is no healing. So that's quite a, a violent image and seems to me to say there is no justice. So I needed to ask you if you felt these women received justice or that justice was even possible. You know, was it worth it in the end for Adina and her daughter and her mother to have done what they've done? Yeah, this is a really powerful question, and um, and it's a, 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 a really important thing to think about. People in the courts think about this all the time, and the the people who were brave, the women who were courageous enough to witness 
um, also think about this. And you will get different answers from different people in real life. In my novel, what I wanted was that one story on the record that changes the law makes it worthwhile. This doesn't. This is not the justice of accounting for every crime that was committed, and this is a real problem in international criminal courts, um, because you know you you what you're doing is you're creating um, jurisprudence to handle specific situations. But in the case of the former Yugoslavia, for example, there are thousands and thousands of women who were raped in these rape camps. Only three people were prosecuted and judged. So um, it, they stand for an evolution in our thought. Um, and I think it's okay to think that evolution in thought is part of justice or part of our notion of justice. Without it, the woman... The woman's body remains a spoils of war. She remains a, a you know a theater of war. But with this change of jurisprudence, we no longer see a, a rape of a woman in war as an act against her. It is now a, an act against humanity, which is really an important consciousness shift. Because if it's an act against humanity, it's an act against all of us. And so we then hold her story in quite a different way. Yeah. I was caught wondering, and actually it made me head back to Google for a sort of date. Like, wait a minute. In my head, because I started thinking of my own experiences watching the war unfold at the time. And then I went, no, 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 that was Rwanda. Oh. And, you know, because Srebrenica, Srebrenica happened about a year after the Rwandan genocide. So it just, when I realized that, I thought, oh, gosh, I mean, do you think it could happen again? I mean, it just, those were two very powerful moments when we kind of felt the, um, I don't know, I guess some of the futility of the international machinery. Um, and yet in the end there was, as you say, sort of that that form of justice in terms of the reshaping of the law. But do you think the actual mass rape as an act of war could happen again in the same way? I have a horrible thing to ask you. It's like a just completely unreasonable question, but it, it when I put the novel down, it was still ringing in my head. But you know what? I think it's really okay to talk about these things. And I think it's okay for us. It's it's very interesting to me how, I mean, I'll go back to old storytelling just to start, and then I'll come back to the present. But when we look at, when we read the Iliad, we don't ask ourselves if it was okay for that writer to write really grotesque descriptions of men's bodies in the war. You know, we have the, that character Harpalion, the young boy who's just dragged and his innards are dragged out. And, and this is all considered artistic. This is considered honorable and something beautiful to read about in the war. And yet we, have, we do not have that for a, a woman's uh, participation in war. So I do think it's, it's, it's gritty that you want to talk about it, but I think it's okay. I mean, it's difficult, right? But, but um, if we cannot talk about it, then we can't make it conscious. Uh, 
So that's just a, a backdrop to why. I mean, it is, it's, it's very difficult to talk about it. And it sits with us differently because of the tradition, because of the actual crime itself, which is different. Um, but it is something that if we grapple with it, we're more likely to be able to respond to it. And um, in response to the question, yeah, I mean, mass rape is happening right now. You know, we see it among the Rohingya people. Um, we, yeah, it's happening in Northeast China with the um, Uyghur situation. It's happening in the Congo. It's, it's, it's ubiquitous. And so all the more reason that in international courts, we have new ways of thinking about this new, juristic, new, new jurisprudence and that all of us can talk about it because we're more likely to act if we can say the words. Yeah, I, I began to see reading the novel, a kind of ripple effect of the women telling their stories and then you as the storyteller telling their story of telling their stories. And then I was thinking about your previous novel in that context as well, The Disappeared, and um, also, right, the aftermath of war, in that case, Cambodia. So can you speak to me a little bit about your your experience of um, and your philosophy on being a storyteller dealing with these stories? The, the, one of the things that's uh, stimulated me to do this is the immense opportunity and privilege of travel. Um, the, the Cambodian story started because a stranger came up to me in a market and said, you know, she wanted people to know the story. And I had not intended when I was traveling there to tell that story, but that kept resonating. And in this case, uh, it took place, the, the, the impulse took place over a longer period of time. I saw these Canadian women, women around the world actually engaging with this story. And when I finally went, I did go to both The Hague and Sarajevo for research before I had actually decided on telling the story um, to see if it still felt right. And in Sarajevo, I met um, I met uh, Bakira Hasejic, who is the founder of Women Victims of War. And she, um, you know, she spent a lot of time and, and it was very moving being in these very simple offices of hers because there were walls and walls of women's files of women's stories, you know, and she was working at prosecuting. She herself had survived. She was in Visegrad. So, but at the end of that interview, I said to her, what do you want? And and I sort of expected an answer about justice or, you know, something other than what I got, which was very concrete. She said, I want money because she needed money to support her work and the women who were largely marginalized 20 years after this experience from their families and communities. And she said, I want the world not to forget. And so if there's, this is what storytelling does. Storytelling holds the stories and it, it does not allow us to forget. So, and in this way, the court is kind of parallel to storytelling, but in different modes because a court gets the stories on the record, um, stores them makes them available. If anyone is interested in this case, for example, they can just get it straight on their computer. Um, and a novel does the same thing, but a novel does it through fiction and through the imagination. And one of the things I think is quite powerful of working about working through with fiction with, it, with this is that when I write fiction and when I read fiction, I am asking myself or the reader to engage with me in the imaginative process. I think in a way it's a it's a deeper entry into the story because you're asking yourself to explore your own empathy. 
and you're asking when you're writing you're asking your reader to come in with you come into these stories and and experience them empathically by reimagining them through the act of fiction um so i think that uh I think this is one of the important things about getting these stories down in different ways. Mm. I was very, um, I mean, the novel is absolutely gorgeous. The writing is gorgeous. And I was very taken, sorry, I'm very moved. I still, still very much in the grip of this story. And um, I was very taken with just the language is beautiful and the role of metaphor in essentially taking what, you know, I can't experience myself. I didn't experience myself. And yet like just ruining it in my body. Right. And in my, as a story for me, so, so powerful, Kim, really, uh, really amazing. So um, if anyone listening to this, you have to go get this book, wherever you're getting your books now, get there right now and get this book. So I wanted to ask you a little more though about your research process, because uh, there's such, it seems to me that there's such a responsibility here around the truth. And so could you talk about the research process and also like how you felt uh, dealing with that balance and responsibility between truth and fiction? The central part of researching a story like this is very deep listening. And so, you know, uh, uh, you prepare yourself by reading, the trial itself is several thousand pages. You read that, you become deeply familiar with it. You read everything you can on the history of the region and so on, um, and the history of the courts. But this, uh, the, the fictional telling of this story is going to depend completely on the people who tell you the story, their stories, and also on um, uh, uh, the, the feeling, the, the feeling that you get from people telling their stories. It's, you, you engage first in a kind of language of intimacy that's pre-verbal. So that you know, when 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 I meet you or or someone, I you know I'm engaging. We're engaging together through our eyes, through the feelings between us, long before we speak, and and this process was very very important for this kind of story. I think it's important for all stories, um, but I, I think it was extremely important for this story. And I, I felt this over and over again. It was quite interesting too, because you know, you, when you in the Hague, when I talked to people who were working on this on the court cases, and who were working with the uh, witnesses, they had to work in a very delicate way with the witnesses. These were people who were coming from other countries into a foreign setting, a foreign court, which was judging their war. And the and and a lot of the people who testified were suffering from from the effects of war, um, and so they, each person would be assigned what they called an assistant, and it was could be a language assistant, it was an operations assistant. There there was a woman I met who talked to me quite a lot about this name. Her, her name was Dita, and she supported um, uh, women in one of the rape cases, and she said. The, the central part was trust. And it took sometimes a very long time to create the trust. And she said the women had to know that they could completely trust what was being asked of them and what would be, um, um, what would happen to them. And, and Dita talked about how um, this took place 
through and she's she's such a warm person right so you could see why she was good at this because it took place through being with people it didn't take place through you know making a promise it it took place through walking together and through the things that they shared and a cup of coffee that we shared and then i mean i think this is i mean this is the dramatic form of that trust but this is what we do every day with each other and so if we're in touch with that we're more likely to be able to hold each other's stories um, so I think that 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 was so I got a little bit off, but that that's what this research was all about. This research was about meeting people who had lived this very intense story and and feeling and hearing uh, what they had to share with me. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, I could very much see that. Um, and I think that comes across actually when I think about the the characters, right? Because. Um, it is, it's a, it's a novel, it's a fictional story. And so you, you know, at the heart of it, you also need powerful characters and relationships between those characters. Can you talk a little bit about um, how the relationships uh, that um, Gota or Goat develops um, kind of facilitate her being, being part of a story that isn't hers, right? It's, she's, she's an outsider, but she's brought in. Um, and so I'd, I'd love to hear just you reflect a little more on like Goda's relationship with um, the women that she meets uh, through, I, I, you know, funnily enough, through this man. So this is kind of, this is interesting because there were, there were, the women shared all kinds of connections in terms of how they were in the war story. So, and, and it was, it, it, if you think of it in terms of the characters, Cosmos, who's from the region, walked away or stayed away so that he wasn't engaged in the war. When he found out that Goto was pregnant, he stayed away from that. So he had the agency in the world to absent himself from things that he didn't want to engage in. The women didn't. You know, Goto could not not have her baby. I mean, she chose to have the baby, but she couldn't walk away from that situation. She had to make conscious decisions about it. Adina had no agency during the war. She could not get out. She was stuck in Focha and uh, she had no agency. So the, the women share these bonds that aren't about sharing even culture and language, but they're they share the bond of experience, of their experience in the world. And they, they refuse to be put to the side. You know, they refuse to be silenced, actually. And then sort of deeper in Gota, because I think that we carry our generations through our bodies. And, um, you know, we see on Adina's side, the grandmother, mother and daughter all having shared this very intense war experience. But Gota's back generational story was also one that included war. It included her mother was lost her, her true love in the Second World War. Um, and her great, great, great grandmother was raped by a man from the Boer War in early days of Canada. So both of the women have this kind of history of, of war inscribed inside their bodies and memories. And though it's not an explicit sharing of experience, it is a shared feeling experience. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, can I ask when you when you look back over your work, um, do you do you see a through line that that is continued here in, in this book thematically? I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah. Do you? Can you tell me? 
Well, I, I, I feel like the, the power of relationships between women certainly is one, um, you know, uh, for sure. And then, of yeah. course, um, most recently, I would say, you know, the war stories. Um, maybe, la- maybe language and women's shared languages, because I'm thinking, I, I hadn't really thought about this, but I'm thinking, um, even with Elephant Winter, so my first book, what did I do but create a woman's, a female language through the female elephant language. So to, to, to try to imagine what an idealized uh, female language would be has probably entered into most of these stories. Yeah. Um, and what are you working on now? Are you, are, you, are you kind of in a period where you're like, oh, I just need a break? Or has something already started to percolate? Yeah, no, I'm. I'm in. I think I'm in a rest phase. <laughs> I'm in a break. I wish I could say I'd plunged into something else, but I'm reading a lot. I'm reading a lot, and I'm reading lots of old things. I'm reading a lot of Shakespeare. I'm reading for the very first time Richardson's Clarissa, which I'd never read before. Um, so yeah, no, this is a nice period for reading. Great. Well, thank you so much, Kim. Thanks for um, walking me through. Uh, some of the themes in this gorgeous novel. And I just want to encourage everyone to get get ye to your local bookstore immediately. Do not pass, go um, and get your hands on this gorgeous novel. Um, thank you very much, Kim. Thank you, Rhonda. That was author and editor Rhonda Douglas in conversation with Kim Eklund about her new novel, Speak Silence. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast, and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoy this podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Music